Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it is Christmas Eve. So how about some holiday laughs with the amazing Duff McKagan joke of the week? <laughs> Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling. Hope everybody's doing good there. I hope you're doing good, my man. We uh, texted while you were in the hospital. Hope you're doing better, my man. Hey, listen, um, there's nothing I like better than sitting in front of a roaring fire with a mold wine in my hand, uh, singing Christmas songs while I f- slowly fall asleep. Maybe that's why I'm no longer a fireman. Thank you very much. All right, Duff, thanks for the joke. <laughs> Wishing you and your family a Merry Christmas, and thanks for the gift of laughter every single Friday. And speaking of Christmas, it's not too late to give the gift of Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Razor at See the Four Leaf Clover. Book your cabin today and give yourself and someone you love the vacation of a lifetime in 2022. We are setting sail on March 14th from Miami to Nassau. Book your cabin now at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Come and join an amazing lineup of talent and special guests. We already have three world champions who will be wrestling on the cruise. Talking about Moose, the Impact World Champion, Jordan Grace, the uh, Digital Impact Women's Champion, and Jonathan Gresham, who is the final Ring of Honor Champion and current Ring of Honor Champion. These guys will all be wrestling on the cruise, plus the uh, the AEW uh, uh, roster that will be announcing soon enough guest of honor mark henry mickey james gals and anderson brad williams king haku mick foley nick aldis brutus beefcake mike rotunda rocky romero swoggle uh, dan lambert arian andrew uh, uh obd the whole crew will be here fozzy quiet riot royal bliss raven the band the new wave of british heavy metal band the world's greatest kiss female cover band pris Frankie Kazarian will be playing. Dave uh, Spivak Project Quarantine. Kate Quigley. Jeff Dye. Uh, such a huge, huge lineup and roster. So go check it out at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. And the Christmas spirit continues today right here on Talk is Jericho. I got writer and director Chris White telling us all about his new movie, Electric Jesus. I've watched it a few times. It's a great story set in the summer of 1986 about a bunch of teenagers trying to make it big with their Christian metal band. It's inspired by Chris White's own life and love of the band, Striper. Of course, uh, Jericho Cruz alumni. They were on the uh, Triple Whammy. This movie is very funny. The music is great. It stars Judd Nelson as the pastor trying to help the band. Brian Baumgartner from The Office as their manager. Uh, Chris is talking about what it took to make this low-budget movie and get distribution for it. It's available to watch on Amazon Prime right now. Uh, you can get more information at uh, ejesusfilm.com. Uh, Chris talks about the casting, how much time and effort they spent on getting the music just right. It's a really great coming-of-age story as well. I know you guys will love this film because I love it, and if you trust my judgment, you got to check it out. Even if you don't love Christian heavy metal, it's still a great coming-of-age story about a great time in the 80s. Here we go. It's the story and making of Electric Jesus, the great new movie, right here with director and writer Chris White, right now on Talk is Jericho. So uh, there's a movie that I've been hearing about for a while, and this is actually pretty cool in this day and age because everything is always so readily available. You can see it on demand. You can see it on YouTube, uh, instant gratification. Things come out all the time that you don't even really know about. This reminded me of kind of an old school movie, which is perfect because it's got an old school feel to it. I'm talking about Electric Jesus, and I got Chris White here, who is the director and writer of the movie. Uh, This has been in the works and had been talked about 
for a while. I remember hearing about this a year or two years ago, something along those lines. Yeah, man. It was um, the film is the rock and roll road movie comedy, but it's a little different for that genre because it's about a Christian hair metal band. Right. In the summer of 1986, we filmed it two years ago in Georgia. Then this pandemic thing happened and kind of Hollywood, every everybody kind of freaked out, you know, production shut down and distribution got all weird. And so now we're finally out, but it couldn't be better timing. I think because it's time to be done with the pandemic, frankly, and it's time to like remember the good old days in many <laughs> ways, right? And especially, it's always a good time to listen to uh, to hear a story about some guys like uh, I think probably like the people you and I grew up with, who are well-meaning, good-natured guys, but maybe a little goofy and maybe don't have it all on the ball. And love Striper though, because uh, Striper plays a big part in this movie. They're the heroes of our stars. What I liked about this, and, and once again, be, because and we'll get all into this, when you hear about there's a movie about Christian metal in the 80s, I'm like, I'm all about it, obviously, because that is, I was that guy. Yeah. Uh, there's a great scene that we'll talk about where, where um, I believe his name is Eric, the, the sound guy. Yeah. He names off about 50 Christian heavy metal and, and rock bands. And I was like, I know every one of these guys. And I could probably name <laughs> another 50 on top of that. But it's funny because the first time I watched it, because whenever you watch a movie, you never really know what to expect. So I watched it once and thought, this isn't bad. And then I watched it again. And I really, really, really liked it after watching it the second time. It has a real almost famous mm. vibe to it. Like this could be kind of a Cameron Crowe type of a film. Wow. Yeah. Where did you come up with this idea? Are you this guy? Like you mentioned, the, this band of not misfits, but a, a Christian metal band in the in the mid eighties was perceived as misfits because you kind of were were neither fish nor fowl. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So where did you come up with the idea for this and 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 the script? Well, you know, when you start doing creative things, you start writing. A lot of times, you get the advice: write about what you know. Right. Tell me a story that you know. Or give me a movie that only you could make that nobody else could make, maybe. Maybe that's good advice for a filmmaker. And I grew up in a Southern Baptist youth group in Columbia, South Carolina in the 80s. I had never seen that world of me and my friends in any kind of media at all. You know, normally when they have Christian or religious people in movies, they're either sinister or stupid or or if it's a christian movie maybe they're like superheroes right these different extremes are either idiots or the super good guys that never mess up and me and my friends we weren't like that we were devout we were serious about our faith i mean we we believed in jesus and we tried to live like the bible told us to live but we were also napoleon dynamite right. people you know we were just awkward teenagers so i thought that's a world i know and then i'd always wanted to do a rock band movie i love rock and roll movies and i like them better when the band doesn't make it like i prefer the movies there's something about like that pursuit of music and passion when it doesn't work out i mean like you i want to succeed and i want to be successful in the things i do and the thought of failing you know like oh gosh you know that's terrible, but I've always found like when I'm messing up or when I'm failing, it's usually when I like learn stuff and grow and learn stuff that helped me, helps me be successful later. So I, I kind of like stories about bands that don't make it. So I guess that's a bit of a spoiler, but the band 
gets a shot to go on the road. And it, it just, it was me and my friends. I mean, they're named after guys I grew up with in my church youth group, all the guys in the band. <laughs> but that's the thing of most bands of this ilk when you're that age, whether it's a Christian rock band or not, don't make it. Right. Like I said, like you mentioned that this was kind of a real cool um, homage and all this other thing, but these are guys that I grew up with and even more so like listening to all those bands back in the day. Like if you took a band like, you know, Messiah prophet, for example, I think you actually do mention them in this movie. (laughs) You look at these guys and that was always the problem with Christian metal is it was very rare to find a striper Mm -hmm. uh, or a Baron cross where everybody looked cool. Like Messiah prophet looked like (laughs) not to be a jerk, but they look like losers. Like don't put a band picture on the back of this album. And that's kind of what, what, what 316 looks like it's kind of yeah, this, yeah. it really reminded me of this ragtag band of okay there's one guy with long hair so i can deal with that but there's the kind of a chubby guy with glasses and then there's a black <laughs> dude with the afro and then there's another guy with the mullet like they don't look cool it you got you no. really nailed that part of it to me yeah I, I was asking some of my metal friends from the era i was like where did you get stage clothes like if it was 1986 you know, where do you get spandex pants? And they're like, you get them from the girls department at Kmart. That's right. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, if you want to look like a rocker or, you know, you find an ad in the back of like a magazine and you order something from some boutique in LA, you know, like a, a net t-shirt or something. So the idea of this makeshift band trying to put it together was definitely a big part of the appeal of the movie. They don't look like rock stars until the very end. Yeah when they do actually kind of look like Striper and, and I think I'm not sure if they actually do. I think that's the guy telling us a story. I think that's in his memory a little bit. I think that's where he's starting to leave the earth and it's turning into, into myth. But I'll tell you this, man, <laughs> when we got the film finished, we took it up to um, Massachusetts. We went up to see Michael sweet from Striper because of COVID the whole band went together, but we sent links to everybody in the band. So we all kind of watched it together. Right. And I was nervous as could be. I mean, the, the movie's very kind to Striper and, you know, but still you're in the room with these guys. We cover one of their songs. We have like a, a three minute scene where the band lip syncs to tell the devil. Like, yeah, it's all, I mean, Striper had no input whatsoever into the movie. So here they are finally seeing this thing. And uh, Michael and Lisa, his wife were there and, and they loved it. They loved it. But especially like, he was like, man, I dig those stage clothes. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it became this really interesting conversation about like, I'm making a band of high schoolers that don't quite ever make it kind of that almost famous vibe. But Michael was saying like, I relate to that now. I relate to playing shows where the crowd's not into it or they're making fun of us or, you know, in some way dissing us or disrespecting us. He's like, I remember when we first got those Bumblebee costumes, you know, that was key to that whole metal scene, that hair metal scene at the time. We had to have a look, you know, and it had to be unique and it had to compete with people like, crew and poison and everybody else and so it was just it was just fun to in that interaction thinking i'm making something about essentially a bunch of losers that don't quite make it you, you got like the top of the heap guys going i still play shows like that hella show they play at the end of this, at the thing so it was so it was it was very cool it's interesting i, I like what you just said there because i was thinking for people that that haven't seen it yet they do play this big show and they have these really nice costumes. And I was like, they just came out of nowhere. I like the fact that you say in his recollection, he's remembering it to be that way. Yeah. It's also very choppily edited at that point. It goes right from, 
the death metal band into them with no introduction and we don't see any positivity at all it, it goes right into just this barrage of booing yeah yeah what was your mindset for that it, it was a trauma we like to be nostalgic for the past and think about the good times but a lot of us have wounds you know we have things that went wrong in our life and it's hard to shake them and I think the young man or the man, our age guy, that's telling us the story, he's telling you the story, what happened in 1986. I think he's he's definitely haunted by what happened mm -hmm. and he's missed some things. That's one of the key things about the movie and one of the reasons why we edit it the way we edit. Our memories are, are weird, man. I mean, we can remember some things that we wish we could forget and then we forget things we wish we could remember. Right. And I think as he's telling the story, he's told the story a hundred times and no spoilers at the very end. But this time he learns something different in the telling. And essentially he learns that the story I've been telling, I got some of this stuff wrong and I missed a big thing that was happening, which uh, has something to do with the girl that sneaks off with the band. He doesn't know that until now. And sometimes when you're a middle-aged guy in the middle of your life, sometimes these epiphanies, sometimes these things that we were suddenly realize about our life, they just kind of come at you out of nowhere and they just hit you and you're like, damn, where was I? I should have learned that like 20 years ago. And it suddenly hits you. So it is that kind of movie. It's a memory movie. And a guy trying to tell you the story, he says, I'm going to tell you as best I can remember. But on top of all that, it's just a bunch of dumb fun. I mean, it's just so much fun to go on that ride with them. And the goofiness of wanting to be striper like rock stars and the reality of being like, like I said, Napoleon Dynamite morons that are just cutting up with your friends. Is kind of the, the beauty of the movie. It lives in that space. Talk is Jericho is supported by Magic Spoon, the breakfast of La Champion. And you guys know that blueberry Magic Spoon cereal is my favorite way to start the day. Starting my day with Magic Spoon's protein-packed, delicious cereal gives me the energy I need to get everything done. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's about 140 calories per serving as well. And check this out. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb. And you can build your own custom box or get a variety pack with available flavors of cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies and cream, and maple waffle. And even better news, Magic Spoon's cookies and cream and maple waffle flavors are back permanently. Just go to magicspoon.com slash Jericho to grab your delicious cereal and try it today. And be sure to use my promo code Jericho at check out to save five bucks off your order and magic spoon is so confident in their product it's back with a 100 happiness guarantee uh if you don't like it for any reason they'll refund your money no questions asked so get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash jericho and use the code jericho to save five dollars thanks to magic spoon for being the breakfast of the champion so when you first come up with this idea for the script and you want to have them kind of chasing the the Striper uh, rainbow, I mean, obviously you want the blessing of Striper. Do you have to get the permission of Striper? If they would have said no, would you have used another band? I mean, kind of how does that whole thing work? Okay, so early on, when I first wrote the script, I think it was about six or seven years ago, the first title of Electric Jesus was To Hell with the Devil. Like, it was like my working title. Right. And I like that because there is a Japanese, weird Japanese movie called To Hell with the Devil, or it's translated into English To Hell with the Devil. But it was reminding me of Striper, right? And I was also thinking, you know, how Striper's playing off To Hell with the Devil, Go to Hell Devil is what the play there. I was actually thinking this, this journey this band was on was going to hell. 
with the devil. <laughs> so I kind of had this working title. Titles are fair game. You can call it anything. But the first time I reached out to Striper, it was an email exchange with them. And she said, we're doing this thing. Striper's going to be in it. We want to license some songs from you. We're not quite to production, but just want you to be aware of it in case you were to hear about it or something. We're not making a Striper documentary or we're not telling your story, but you exist in our world, I guess. So just a friendly thing. And the only response was they said, oh, my gosh, that sounds so cool. Let us know how it goes. But don't call it to hell with the devil. <laughs> like <laughs> you're going to have trouble with Google searches. Like our, our record's going to come out. Like it's, it's like our biggest record. And it, it wasn't like protecting them. It was more protecting me. And then it was like, and also that kind of sounds like it might be a horror movie if it was right. called to hell with the devil. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's not going to be the title. You know, we're going to have a title for the movie, but it's just like a working title. But yeah, they were nice and on board. I went to see the band play my wife, Emily, that co-produced the movie with me who had never heard Striper in her life. We went to a couple of shows and they were amazing. If people don't know, Striper, I think, is a better band now. Yeah. Uh, better, better songs now, better tours now. They're just they're just a better band. And I'm so glad that they picked up the mantle again several years ago and, and just went at it hard again. Because, man, between Michael and Striper, I mean, he's putting out a record a year. Yeah. And it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. So they're vital and they have a, they have a strong fan base. And um, we also mentioned Amy Grant in the movie, who was like the pop star of Christian music at the time. But to me and my friends, and we kind of hint at it in the movie, we, we weren't allowed to like Amy Grant, you know, publicly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we couldn't be no like Amy Grant fans. <laughs> she was actually pretty hot, but we, we, we couldn't say we liked her. Couldn't listen to her music. Come on, man. Yeah. It's funny because, like I said, when you see them in there, and that is kind of an attraction, but take the striper out of it and, and the story is so strong. Uh, but let's go back to the scene where, where Eric names off all the, all the Christian metal bands. Did you know these bands off by heart? Or did you have to? Yeah. Just to explain it. And people that listen to my show, we've discussed this in the past. There were so many bands from 86 to probably about 91 in the Christian metal, Christian rock market. That was the yeah. greatest time for that style of music. So like I said, when he mentions 50 bands, there was 50 more that you could name. We had a moment in the movie when the, when the the movie band covers Makes Me Want to Sing by Striper. Yeah. And we were recording it. You record these in the studio and then you go shoot the movie. So we're recording it and the actor, Wyatt Linhart, who plays Michael, the lead singer of the band, and he really sang these songs. We did a take and the, the last note, we just were kind of like, hey, dude, why don't you just hold the last note as long as you can? And it's a super high note. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, well, I think I, you know, I think I can hold it pretty long. We're like, well, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's see how long. And it was absurdly long. Like he held it for like almost 30 seconds. It's no, it's ridiculous. And we laughed and we're like, oh, that's hilarious. You know, that'll be a great outtake or something. But then we decided to keep it in the movie. And it is in the first scene of the movie when you, they play and he holds notes, exceptionally long notes, studio trickery. That's really why it's voice. <laughs> and when we got to that scene where Eric's telling they ask him, you know, what kind of music do you like? And he just rattles off. It's Chris, it's actually 66 bands, one for every book of the Bible. <laughs> of course. Very good. <laughs> but we got to that point and I just, I wanted another joke, like a too long joke, like a note extended joke. And we have this great music supervisor and Christian music historian that was working with us on the movie. I mean, I knew, I knew Christian music. I was about, with that list, I probably knew 70, maybe 80% of those bands. 
I'd heard of most of them, but there were some that I'd never even heard of. <laughs> and this guy, his name is John Thompson, and he's a fantastic dude. And I just said, can you give me a list of 66 Christian bands that Eric likes? Instead of just saying Bloodgood, Baron Cross, Striper, Saint, you know, whatever was in the script, I want 66 bands. And he's like, okay. So he goes back and he writes this list. And I go to the actor, like, I think it was like two days before he shot it. And I was like, oh, we got a script change. Andrew Eckel, who plays Eric, he's so awesome. And uh, so he got a little change. And he's like, okay, okay. And then I said, you have to memorize them. You have to pronounce everything correctly. <laughs> and it's going to be a surprise when we shoot it because I want to cover the reaction of the other guys in the scene. Like the other guys didn't know he's going to rattle off 66 bands. They just thought he was going to go with the script. And I just want to see their reactions to you going on. And on and on, and uh, and I want to. I don't know. We might cut some of them, but but as it turned out, we left the whole scene in. And one thing that everybody who was a Christian music of, fan of any kind, even the like Jesus freak people from the seventies, because we dropped some of those names in too. Everybody's got somebody they know in one of those bands. <laughs> it's cool. It's you know, it's become a way to connect with those different fan bases. But man, it's so funny, and I just love it when. Gunnar Willis plays Cliff, the big guy with the glasses. And he, after that whole list, he just says, he says, what was the third one again? <laughs> like, but you missed the joke. I thought for sure he was going to say blood good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I always say that when I'm watching the movie with an audience, I always turn to the person next to him and say, it was blood good, by the way. Because <laughs> I went back and watched, by the way, and counted. Okay, okay, the third good. one is blood good. <laughs> yeah. And they deserve all the credit. That, that's always a, a, a joke in my family when we went to a restaurant once and the waiter gives the big dissertation about, here's the specials. Of the guy. And my mom literally said, what's the third one? And was serious, <laughs> not trying to make a joke. He's like, uh, I don't know. So when he said, what's the third one? I was like, blood good. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone likes a great deal. Like savings, markdowns, and lunch specials. But when it comes to car insurance, we know the right place. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates for your ride. Your friends don't have to have a connection or call in a favor. State Farm offers options like insuring your ride and your home. Getting you great rates on both. Now that's a deal. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. But let's talk about how, how, you know, the subject matter notwithstanding. Like I said, this really goes deep. And it's not just, you know, if you like Christian metal, you don't like Christian metal. You like the 80s, you don't like the 80s. It really is a great coming-of-age story. And almost, like you said, sometimes your dreams don't come true. And as a matter of fact, most of the time they don't come true, especially when you want to be in a rock and roll band when you're in high school. Yeah. It's very rare. I I, I interviewed uh, Greta Van Fleet for this podcast oh, wow. a couple months ago. And they're the, they actually made it out of high school. <laughs> and I was like, there has been 10 million bands <laughs> right, right. that formed in high school that were going to go all the way. You're the one that did it. So it really is a great coming of age type of a story. When you get the script down, like you mentioned, we don't want to spoil it, but the end, the ending really got me the second time I watched it uh, and came right out of left field as well. Yeah. How do you get this movie made as an independent filmmaker? Well, yeah, I mean, independent filmmaking just means it's almost like, you know, starting a business, right? Or, you know, opening a bar or something. Right. You're going to start this business, create a product, and you, you have to raise some money, you know, so there's private equity involved. There are different film incentives that, places like Georgia give you to, if you film there, but it becomes a big business, man. And, and you know, this from your own pursuits, you know, on the day 
to the outside world, it looks like you're an artist and an athlete and an entertainer. But the day-to-day of you being you and doing your business is just that. It's a business. And so I have an incredible partner in my wife, Emily, is the best writer I know. She's truly an artist, but she's also, she digs the money stuff. She digs the legal stuff, you know? So we just kind of put our heads together and we, we made some, some other films first. You know, we kind of learned how to make movies. We started learning about distribution. We started uh, raising money for smaller projects and finding success with those things. So when this movie came around, it was was a big step up for us, but we just treated it like it was a business. We're starting a business and we, you know, you make a business plan and you go into it. But people ask me all the time, you know, how'd you get like Judd Nelson to be in the movie? How did you get Brian Baumgartner plays Kevin on the office? How do you get these famous people to be in it? You pay them. (laughs) So so you, you have money and you call their people and you available these days. And would you want to do this role? So, I mean, yeah, the the boring part of it is the three or four years you spend trying to find the money and the resources to do it. The fun part, I, well, maybe the funnest part is when it's when you've got the film in the can and you're sitting back in the edit suite. <laughs> right. You know, I've got a great buddy, Scott Lansing, who's my editor. He's just a fellow storyteller. You know, I still remember the first time we got in for Electric Jesus, we got in the edit suite together and we just like, just started crying and hugging it out. <laughs> we were like, I can't believe we got this film again. And now, now we got the work, the hard work comes, you know, we got to make this thing good. So it's on one hand, it's, it's independent films, like any kind of business you start on the other hand, you know, they're movie stars and parties and there's kind of a sexiness to it that I think people see, but it's just, I mean, it's very similar to what you do. The day to day of it isn't sexy at all. You know, it's just doing the work, grinding it out finding the good people to work with and keeping them around. That's what it was like. It's one of those ones where I was like, damn it. I wish I was in this movie. I'm like watching the different roles. Like I could have played the guy from fire escape. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> hey, look, you see all that. You're on my, my call list now for sure. <laughs> Electric Jesus too. Yeah. Give me a call. <laughs> Seriously, Jericho. When um, I told a friend, it's like, if I really made Electric Jesus exactly like my youth group from the eighties, there'd be a little bit less Christian rock music and a lot more wrestling because wrestling was like, that was a big part of me and my friends and our friends group. And in fact, in 1986, when this movie set, we had this crazy youth minister in my church and he did this outreach thing where he created a wrestling event, <laughs> it, it, like a youth group, like bring kids. He found some guys, some cool guys from a local high school that played football and wanted to wrestle. And we had this older retired the rumor was he'd been a wrestler at some point yeah and they created this event that was like a wrestling match one night that of course brought 200 kids to our church in west columbia south carolina and also resulted in essentially the supposed wrestler dude like almost breaking his back and having to <laughs> call i mean it was a complete like on one level it was like this insane disaster that me and my friends still talk about the, to this day like did that happen there was like a wrestling match and it was right outside the sanctuary and it's like yeah that all happened but on the other hand it was like it was invigorating there were like 200 kids that came out and were like into it and it was exciting and I, that was my experience with church church is a place where there was activity and creativity and and excitement and yeah, it was all built around this idea of Jesus. Like when I went to church in high school, it was uh, Anglican, which is kind of um, 
spinoff, shall we say, of the Catholic Church. So it's very much sure. the chants, the incantations, and you got to say this homily, and you got to sing this hymn, and mm-hmm. just completely like, you know, really boring stuff. So to get into Christian heavy metal made Christianity exciting. You know, then I came to the States, and you see they're singing in church, and they got drummers, and they got bands, and all that sort of thing. It right. wasn't like that when I grew up in Canada. So Christian metal was a way to connect to the Lord. Like we mentioned earlier, when you're talking even about 316, which by the way is a great name for a, a Christian metal band, yeah. <laughs> they don't look cool. And no, most of those bands didn't, but Striper really did. So that's why another reason why I think Striper became the template for not just Christian rock, they're a great rock and roll band, but you could, you could listen to this band from a heavy metal standpoint and also look at them from a cool standpoint and go, wow, there are some pretty cool looking Christians in bands, etc. And here's something else. They weren't on a Christian record label. That's right. Like most of those bands were having to be on Christian labels, which meant you could only get those records like at the Christian bookstore. That's right. Yeah. Like where your mom and her friends went to buy Bibles. Or I used to hang out at the Christian bookstore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's always a little awkward in the Christian bookstore looking for cool music. <laughs> but like Striper, you could buy those at a real record store. And even though they were certainly very overtly Christian, they weren't hiding that at all about their presentation if nothing else they almost in like a war with motley crew you know it was like 777 versus 666 you know like it was it was i love the fact that you mentioned the uh the long legendary mythical rumored heaven and hell tour (laughs) of striper and motley crew (laughs) that's what 316 is trying to do to get the opening slot on the heaven and hell tour yeah and, and like, I've always heard that everybody that ever listened to Christian music were like, yeah, man, I heard about that too. So, you know, we finally are hanging out with Striper and I just asked Michael, it's like, what's the deal? Heaven and Hell tour. And he goes, I don't know how much I can tell of this. So I'm going to tell just as You can. He's told the story here before on, on Talk is Jericho. Yeah. Oh, he has. Okay. Yeah. So they were going to do it and they couldn't come to terms with Motley Crue. Like there was tension. I mean, I think he said they were in somebody's kitchen, you know, at their house, maybe Nikki's. And they're like, let's do this thing, man. Let's do this heaven and hell thing. And they just couldn't, maybe too many, many egos in the room or whatever, but it couldn't happen. And so it became this myth that like everybody <laughs> somehow knew something about it. And they just, with our release of our movie, Striper released a t-shirt that says Electric Jesus on it. Sort of a design that's an homage to Yellow and Black Attack record. And yeah. on the sleeve, they they put the Heaven and Hell Tour 1986. <laughs> I always said that it'd be very easy to do the, the stage production. You just have a giant cross for Striper, but it's on a wheel and you just turn <laughs> yeah, it yeah, yeah. to the upside down cross for Motley Crue. <laughs> yep, dude, but who would open? Who would open? Well, I mean, 316, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think they would those bands couldn't decide on who should be the headliner. You'd have to do the co-headlining thing. Obviously, probably crew would go on last, but it's one of those yeah. great, uh, you know, what if type stories. Hey, it's still possible. Why not? Come on, Striper. You never know. Hey, Striper's never been afraid of that, though. I think it's always the other bands. It is. That have a problem. It is. That's true. I know one time they were supposed to play a festival in Mexico, either co-headlining with Slayer or they were second from the top and Slayer was at the top. And I think Slayer actually pulled out. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. They just played on the cruise, right? They did. They they were amazing. They they, they did exactly what I knew they were going to do. People going, who the heck is this band? I've never heard of Striper before, or I've heard of Striper, but never heard them. And they blew people away. You know, they, they love that. They too. really he, did. Yeah. I mean, they love that challenge for sure. 
All right, there are a lot of things that nobody likes to do, like calling somebody back when they text you we need to talk, or cardio every day, or running the ropes when you're first getting started in wrestling. And I'm sure everyone can add scooping cat litter to that list as well. I know we all love our cute little feline family members, but the smell, the scooping, the scraping of stuck-on mess, nobody loves that. Problem solved, however, thanks to Arm & Hammer Slide Litter, the litter that slides right out, leaving nothing behind. You still may not love cleaning the litter box, but now you can just slide out the funk. Arm & Hammer Slide Litter. More power to you. Another thing that's really cool, too, that, that and, and, and once again, you're making a movie for the masses, and obviously most people don't recognize these details, but for me, this is my world. I was that guy. I actually sent the link to to watch it to Richard Christie from the Howard Stern show and Howard Jones from Kill Switch, former Kill Switch engaged. Now he's in Light the Torch. We have a, a, a text group. It's actually called Heaven's Metal. We are the three biggest Christian metal bands. So I sent it to them. You got to check this movie out. But here's the cool thing. You guys are really good at it's it's filmed in, in a set in 1986 and it actually looks pretty much like 1986. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this is a really stickler. You might not even realize this. Even when he list, lists the bands, there's a lot of bands that aren't in there because they weren't around in 1986. Bride, Guardian, Holy Soldier. Yeah. These type of bands. I was like, that's really, really good. <laughs> Did you spend <laughs> a lot of time in making sure that everything was legit as far as you could? Yeah, yeah. So we're 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 a low budget movie. A tactic you can do when you're shooting something low budget is I can't show the whole world. Like I can't walk into a church and show the whole church filled with a thousand people or something because that's expensive, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you have to keep the frames smaller. I need to see less. You know, we spent a lot of time and money and effort on getting hairstyles right, clothing right. And one of the things about wardrobe I was pretty much a stickler on is we didn't have new clothes all the time. You know how now like kids, it's like disposable fashion, your kids go to Old Navy or Forever 21 <laughs> or one of these stores where it's just cheap and trendy. And it's always, everybody's wearing something new all the time. We didn't grow up that way. No. Everything I had, you wore until you grew out of it. And sometimes you kept wearing it. Yeah. And all my friends were like that. So we wanted a real 80s. The other thing is, as much as I like Stranger Things, we didn't want to do that. Like That's so on the nose 80s. It almost feels like everybody's solving a Rubik's Cube and moonwalking all the time. Yeah. In those 80s. So yeah. it's like, no, that wasn't like the eighties. We weren't aware we were in the eighties. We, right, right. we were just doing our life and everything. So keeping things simple, you know, making sure that telephones are the right period, you know, skip wick, the manager picks up the phone. It's going to be like it was then. And then the sound of it, the sound effect, all these things are, have to be that exact world. And it's funny, you know, I was just like, nothing on that frame can give away the trick that we're not there. Everything is super subtle. And then it just feels like a lived in 80s. It feels more true. I'm glad you noticed that because yeah, a lot of a lot of the the details and everything were very specific. And and again, even though it's Eric's memory and our memory gets corrupted sometimes or we add things to it or take things away, I think we we stayed pretty true to that. One thing on the score, you know, there's all these original songs we did for the movie with this amazing composer, a guy named Daniel Smith, but in the the score, like the music that plays in scenes and everything. One rule we had in the studio was that this music that connects the dots and creates emotion and stuff in scenes, we can't use any instrument that didn't exist that wouldn't be in a studio in 1986. So we can use 
a synthesizer or, you know, an electric piano, but it has to be the one that was in that studio. The sounds that come out have to be that. Drums have to be real drums or even down to the bass we're playing should be a bass that would be sitting in a studio. And those guys just did a heroic job. Like one of the best things about the movie is the music. Mm -hmm. You know, those songs that have cheesy, funny, 15-year-old Christian kid lyrics, but hold up as just these amazing (laughs) rock songs in that style. And then also just the connected music is beautifully done and, again, produced like it would be at the period. No, the the songs are are really great. I want to talk about that because, once again, that was always another thing about Christian metal. And God bless the guys, but, you know, you would get some of these bands, and I don't don't want to keep hitting on them, but I just remember (laughs) freaking Messiah Prophet. Uh, it's not a great name to begin with. You're sticking, you're shoehorning these two, you know what I mean? Like disciple saint or something like that. Right. right and and right. then you see the guy in the back and the, the, everyone's going bald and it's not like the scorpions or at least they're going bald, but they look still like the scorpions Yeah. and there's like rock the flock. I mean, who's writing a song called rock the flock. It's terrible. <laughs> but the thing about, about three sixteen is, is, is the songs are very catchy. There's a few of them, but, but one is called uh, Barabbas. And the other one is called uh, 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 Commandos of Rock or Commandos of Jesus. Commando for Christ. Yeah, Let's All Go Commando. But those are songs like I can envision myself hearing these in that time frame. Really nailed the the feel of it and the lyrics. Like you said, there's there, Striper was like that too sometimes. If, you know, the hair is long, but the screams are loud and clear. Earrings dangling <laughs> from the ear. Yeah. They have those type of lyrics to it. So even that has the feel of this kind of mid-80s Christian scene? Well, there was always, uh, those bands would, so Christian war songs were always, it was big in that in that scene, like a song about spiritual warfare, but it would use graphic images of, of fighting and war. You know, we've had that ever since the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, right? So that, right. that idea of a Christian war song is what Commando for Christ is. It's also written by a 15-year-old who's listening to a lot of that music and wants to be cool. So he's trying to think of war images and he, he talks about a Yahweh M80 rocket launcher. And just, it's like a kid trying to be cool, but, but also it's like Cliff came up with that line. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. He claimed that line. But, but the thing is, is this is where me and Daniel just were really tight from the beginning. I was like, these songs, melodies have to be good. They have to be great songs. They have to be produced. Well, they have to be songs you hum on the way out. But I will write the words. So I wrote the words. So I'm like, I'm going to write the words in character. I'm going to write the words like Michael's writing. And write, Michael's trying to write a badass Christian war song. And like Barabbas, this is cool about Barabbas, which, by the way, I think Fozzie needs to cover Barabbas. Oh, my gosh. No kidding. I think it's, it's a very Fozzie song. It's too high for me. <laughs> oh, could be. Yeah, it's pretty high. When I was writing that, I was trying to make... Because Barabbas is like a guy, if you don't know, Barabbas is part of the crucifixion narrative. Like when Jesus is crucified... There's this really bad dude that, you know, Pilate's trying to get out of this. And he's like, come on, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? And they're like, let Barabbas go, kill Jesus. He's a figure in that narrative. And he just sounds cool. The name is kind of cool. And and there's some legends about Barabbas, that Barabbas, once he was freed, he, he became a follower of Jesus later on. Barabbas was up on the cross as well. No, no, he wasn't on the cross. He got he got off. He got off. Oh, gotcha. So they let him go put Jesus up instead. Gotcha. Right. So I wanted to write this song where a 15-year-old is trying to really go for it. And I wanted it to come on a chorus that said, you can be Barabbas too. The idea being, you can be a child molesting murderer, you know, like you can be the worst person in the world. 
I wanted that to be the mistake. So if you heard the song, you'd be like, oh, I don't think we want everybody to be Barabbas. You know, he was bad. <laughs> but what happened, man, is once the song starts becoming a song, I started hearing this gospel message in it. I didn't intend to write a gospel song. And yet the gospel idea, which is Jesus takes the place of my sin. You know, Jesus's death forgives me for my sin. You can be Barabbas means that Jesus can forgive you too. I, that didn't occur to me when I'm trying to be funny. And yet that very important theological point of Christianity just comes through writing the song. And all, I, think it's, I think it's like a great Christian rock song. I think any Christian band could rock out to that song and be very legit. On the other hand, you have a song like Girl, I Love Jesus Too, which is the ballad. This is a song that's very confused about who's who, who's talking to you. Is it Jesus or your boyfriend? <laughs> and those are very common in kind of Christian music, like sometimes done deliberately. You know, that could be either. It could be you could be in love with Jesus or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or just just needlessly confusing. Like Jesus will give you a hug, or Jesus is my girlfriend, Jesus is my boyfriend. I think that one comes across maybe a little wackier and funnier. But Barabbas, I think. I could hear any of those Christian bands playing Barabbas. And, Absolutely. And, and I didn't even, you know, again, writing the words, I was trying to make a joke. And lo and behold, I wrote a, a Christian rock song. Well, yeah, you could be Barabbas too, and that you could be the worst person and then turn good, if that is yeah. the case of what he did. Yeah. You mentioned Daniel Smith. Was Is he in a, a Christian band or is he just a guy you know? So Daniel was known in the 90s. Uh, Daniel is a Christian, but he was in this alternative folk rock band called Danielson sometimes Danielson family, very critically acclaimed. They were on Tooth and Nail Records, which is a Christian record label. But man, you know, it just has so much respect in the rock, alternative rock and folk world. And I knew him from that. He also collaborates with Steve Taylor, who was a big mm -hmm. Christian rock icon at the time. Daniel played on Steve's band. I kind of knew Daniel and he and I met at some point, a mutual friend introduced us and thought we'd be buddies and we, we became friends. But I was like, like, I know he's got an ear for melody. He can write great songs. I was like, could you write these metal songs for Electric Jesus? And he's like, dude, in middle school, all I listened to was Def Leppard, Rat, <laughs> Van Halen. Yeah, I think I can. And so he got one of his childhood friends who's still a metalhead up in Jersey. They're all South Jersey guys, all these guys. A guy named John Montgomery who plays all those guitars, wrote all those solos, broke down the songs and really turned them into the compositions they are with nods to so many bands. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you really know music and you start listening to Electric Jesus songs, you'll start hearing all these familiar things. There's one that I thought at first they were covering a Judas Priest song. I can't remember what riff it was. That maybe some heads are going to roll or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You can hear the, the, the influences. We had to write a death metal song. Right, yeah. <laughs> because in the club, there's this death metal band playing. And, and even that, Daniel was like, we have to make this a great death metal song. E even though the words are hilarious, the music has to be stand up because the thing is, it's a rock band movie. If you go and the in the songs are lame, nobody wants to sit. You know, it's just a quick joke. No, like like I said, I mean, you're making this movie. It's very specific. Once again, I'm a music fanatic, and I've seen these types of movies before where they don't really nail it, and it comes across as lame. Once again, the, the best comparison I can use for Electric Jesus is a Christian version of Almost Famous. Yeah. And if you look at Almost Famous, the music is great. Another great example is Rockstar with Steel Dragon. Oh, yeah. You can listen to those songs 
you know, and, and you want to hear them again, again, stand up and shout and, and a, a blood, is it blood division or whatever that was called. Yeah. And, and that's like for, for these tunes, I want to go on Spotify and look them up and see if they're on there to listen to them just in my spare time. And that's the sign that you really na- nailed the music. Blood pollution is what I was thinking. Yeah. And they are, they are. Chris, please do go on. Yeah, good. We'll go to Spotify. There's even a, a vinyl, double gatefold vinyl LP that Joyful Noise Recordings has put out for the Electric Jesus soundtrack. So, yeah, it's all out there, and um, and I'm so proud of that music. And then, of course, for people maybe you're not into metal, there's also all kinds of music in the movie. Uh, the girl who um, they pick up on the road, she sings in a more Americana bluegrass style, and uh, that's kind of integrated. At one point, they do a, a really great metal punk mashup of of this world is not my home (laughs) why did eric turn the sound down so the drummer couldn't hear it was he trying to mess with her yeah yeah he was he he was a little hurt he got his feelings hurt he caught her uh got her messing around up in the balcony there yeah yeah he didn't like that very much Thanks to NHTSA for supporting Talk is Jericho as well. You're hanging out with some friends this Christmas season, putting back a few drinks, but a few becomes too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Eh, no, why bother? You live nearby. You can make it home okay. It's no big deal. What are the odds? You're going to get pulled over anyway, and even so, what's the worst that can happen? Your insurance goes up. You lose your license. You lose your job. You total your car. You kill somebody. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop people from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again, you're not. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Let's talk about the casting of this film because you mentioned you do have some pretty big names and you've done a great job with people that I hadn't heard, the guys in the band. So kind of talk about, first of all, how you chose the the band, the cast, and then how did you get, I mean, obviously you said you paid them, but still you have to have a a pretty meaty role for for Baumgartner to show up and for Judd Nelson to show up. Yeah, so with the kids, that took a couple of years. I wanted to find people that look like my friends that I grew up with. In other words, they didn't have that Hollywood shine on them. They they weren't hustling in the New York market or the LA market. And you find this when you're when you're trying to cast a movie and be teenagers. Usually, you're casting young twenty somethings, so you don't have to give them school. But there are plenty of kids, you know, like Disney Channel kids, or you know, kids that even have big social media followings. You know, influencer kind of kids that are actors and everything. And I just didn't want that. I wanted it to be raw. So. I was finding kids that were in bands or finding kids that were doing theater or maybe kids that were making their own short films. I mean, it took two years to get that cast together. And it was one of these things where I just kind of knew, you know, I wanted them all to be different. But then, you know, they all had to be friends. Like we, when we shot the movie, we put them in a house together. They all lived together and they did become friends. I mean, they, they made meals together. They went to the grocery store. They went to set. They kind of had this amazing experience all together. And I think you can see it on screen. It looks like they're really friends. Yeah, they're, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. They're also great actors. And we put them in a position to be great actors. And especially, I'll tell you this about Brian. When you're doing a film and then the film is announced and uh, you know, you're casting, you get actors submit, like agents submit different actors. And there are lots of famous people that were put up for the part and we were considering. 
Oh, wow. For, for part of Skip? Yeah, for the band manager. And some of them really compelling and like, that's interesting. In fact, uh, at some point through another connection, this wasn't, you know, I was even talking to Gaffigan. I was talking to Jim Gaffigan about the role. He's an awesome actor. And yeah, we kind of had mutual friends, and we, but he was on tour. He wasn't, he wasn't able to do it, but I knew I wanted somebody that was funny and could do the comedy. I saw Brian's face come up on a submission and I was like, wait a minute. You know, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking Kevin from The Office, right? Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't seem like the guy that could be this kind of huckster band guy. And then I just started YouTubing him and I started seeing all these stuff of him. And he seemed like such a compelling guy. And then I found he was a theater guy and I was trained in theater. I found he's from Atlanta. So we reached out and I sent him Commando for Christ. And I said, there's this movie, here's a script, here's a song. And he called me. He's like, I'm driving in L.A. <laughs> and I keep listening to Commando. And this is insane. You know, what is this? You know? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I think it could be really fun. And I said, but I told him, I was like, but here's the thing. I always heard these stories about Dead Poets Society where Robin Williams, who's the teacher in that, came alongside those young actors and was like a mentor and a friend throughout the shooting. People like Ethan Hawke, you know, were in that movie. That's like, right. That's what I want. So I want you and I want you to be funny and I want you to bring, I want you to tell me how you guys made The Office funny. I mean, what a dream for me to be working with an actor like that. But I said, but I want you to be this kid's friends. And I'm telling you, Chris, like he so embraced that role. Like he had worked with Robin Williams on a, I think a stage play at one point and loved Robin like so many people do and said, I would love to do that. So, I mean, from the time he got to set, I mean, the night he came in, and I took him out to a fancy dinner and, you know, it's like, get to know you kind of meal. Right. Sure. After that meal, he was like, can we go to the cast house? I want to meet these guys. It was like 10, 1030 at night. And we go over to this house, knock on the door and they're all watching the office. <laughs> I mean, they're like typical 20 somethings, right? They're watching the office 24 seven and in walks Brian. And then from then on out to like a couple of weeks ago, we hung out with him at Newport Beach Film Festival and it was the same. He's a friend and a mentor to those guys and has been very supportive of all of them as they pursued their acting and getting acting to the next level. So part of it was just that spirit with Judd, you know, Judd Nelson, one of my heroes growing up, you know, he was the man, you know, our age, you know, sure. I mean, Bender and it was everything he did. He was just such a cool figure. And um, we wanted somebody from the eighties that would have been in movies then. And we pitched him the part of the preacher. And it turns out Chris that, Judd came in and we spent two hours talking about the Bible. <laughs> you know, like he's like a really well-read, fascinating dude, wants to talk about all the big questions, all the big issues, and knows a lot. That turned out to be not only is he awesome in the movie, but he's just a fascinating guy to hang out with. Why did you want somebody from the 80s? Just as a connection, a subtle connection? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you want to have a few recognizable faces. And I, I just thought, you know, there's some guys that were teenagers when we were younger that are older now that could populate some of these adult roles. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we, we talked to Judd and it turned out being just a great fit and he was wonderful to work with. And he will talk to you about, you know, John Hughes and auditioning for the breakfast club and all the cool stories you really sure, want to hear. hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also he's like, goes deep on, David and Goliath or, you know, like Bible stories and stuff. And um, that was a joy. That was a joy. But, so you know, Brian was too. They were all just wonderful. Brian is the uh, one of the leaders 
in cameo one of the uh, highest grossing cameo unbelievable actors out there so <laughs> and, and that happened after we did the movie i remember doing the movie he was first starting cameos i was in his trailer one time i was like uh he's like i gotta do i gotta do a couple of these little i'm like what he goes i just talk to people i record these things and <laughs> it's real quick you know and i'm like what what, what are you and talking then, about yeah. thing, you know then we rap and last year it's like announced he's like their first million dollar client or something it's like what Wow. Yeah, unbelievable. So once the movie's done, and like you said, you're in the editing room, you put it together where you want it, how do you, in 2020, 2021, distribute a movie? I, I did a documentary last year, and the distribution part where you think, well, there's so many platforms, it should be easy to sell this thing, everybody needs content, not necessarily the case. What was your uh, plan to get this thing out there? Well, I'd spent so many years raising money for it and trying to explain that it's a Christian rock band movie that's not like what you would consider a faith-based movie. I just think those are cheesy, most of those. And, Let me um, just jump in here. It's like it's it's a Christian rock movie the same way that Walking Dead is a zombie show. Yeah, It's yeah. the backdrop for what's going on, but it's the relationships of these people that you really tune in to see. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. That's exactly what it is. But a lot of people would just think, oh, it's Christian. So this is for Christians. And I'm like, well, I do want Christians to see it. I think some Christians will like it, but I'm not making it exclusively for Christians. So you have those conversations for so long raising money. Then you get the film and people see the film and they're, then they're like, well, ho holy crap. This is like a coming of age rock band movie set in the eighties. Like, yes, that's what it is. Yes. And then they're like, but I think Christians will like it. You're not like making fun with of Christians. No, we're having fun with Christians, but we're not making fun of Christians. No, not at all. Yeah. You know, the audience base kind of expands. And I'll tell you from, you know, we spent about a year because of COVID and release schedules and things like this. We spent a year going to film festivals. The thing that would come away from these festivals we'd go to was one, if you had any contact with Christian rock, like somebody like yourself and you saw Electric Jesus you were just like, holy crap, this is like my life. You know, like, <laughs> I can't believe that this exists. Like, it's almost like that was a dream and I can't tell anybody about it, but it's real. That really happened. That's the way we were. So those people would really resonate with it. And then people who aren't Christians or religious at all would come to the movie and see it for what it is, which is just a coming of age movie that inverts some of the rock band tropes, the idea of the girl being the muse. Well, what if the girl was really the talent? What if this was really her story and you thought it was your story? Like that's different for the rock band genre. That's an innovation. And people started seeing that. And then the music is insane. And like people were like, I didn't even know there was such a thing as Christian rock. Right. There are people that didn't even know that Christians did rock music. And those people <laughs> really latched onto it too. So we had these weird extremes of, of fans that developed. So what, what ends up happening is People started hearing about the movie. People start seeing the movie. A lot of distributors became interested in the movie. So right now, when we went with the best offer we got, which was a very, a really nice offer, but we went with people, 1091 Pictures, who are really one of the leading up and coming distributors right now. And 1091 will tell you, we, we don't do theatrical releases for independent movies. That puts you as a producer in a hole that you can't ever get out of. It costs so much money to do that. And they're like, but we know how to exploit streaming distribution, VOD, SVOD, all the different distribution platforms. We feel like we know how to exploit that and get this film in front of the people that will love it and then make it live for a decade instead of a weekend. Mm. And that's really where I believe distribution is going. You do have to have content 
that it has a discernible appeal. Like we need to know who would like this movie and it has to be quality. But what our colleagues at 1091 have been so good at doing is just committing to that and really owning that. You know, I can do like an art house or a small screen, but I can't occupy a screen that Marvel or Disney is occupying right now. Sure. I mean, the movies industry has been dead for a year. They're not going to let Electric Jesus have a screen. Instead, we're just going straight to our people. We're in a premium VOD window, but eventually we'll be on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and all those subscription sources. And also you can get a Blu-ray DVD. You know, you can get physical media. But ask me this in a year. But right now, you know, we're very happy with the exposure the film's getting and the interest the film's getting. I mean, it's challenging. It's always going to be challenging if you're the outsider coming in. I mean, you know this from your own work. If you're starting a new thing, you're going to fight for everything you get. So, you know, some of it is, yeah, we're fighting for everything we get. But, Chris, we we just spent, you know, a year during a COVID where so many things were shut down. And just every time we pulled this movie out at some film festival, it was like they were surprised they liked it. You know, they were like, how how am I liking this movie? <laughs> it's, well, it's interesting. I like I mentioned the documentary that I did is it's a, it's a rock and roll documentary. It's called um, "I'm Too Old for This Shit." Oh wow! Just yeah. so you know, I put it out same way uh, VOD, iTunes, that sort of thing. And I just it was I think eight or nine months ago, and I just got my first royalty check, which means that the company that I worked with, Gravitas, recouped their expenses recoup their investment yeah and it was the grand total of one dollar and 49 cents but you're in the black. eight or nine months in i'm in the black right so i think what you just said and for people out there that are interested in, in, in independent filmmaking that is the way of the now not the way of the future it's the way of now and we always have a stigma of well it has to be in a theater kind of does but i think that the pandemic like you said when theaters are locked down it almost like reconfigured how people consume their movies theater will always be there but there's a lot more vod and streaming at your home and how many people need to rent or buy my movie before i become profitable it's it's right i don't need i don't even need a million people to do that half a million i'm making money and then the world is huge right Mm -hmm. and we're being released in every country in the world you know all these countries are coming online so it, you got to look at it and we're getting into the weeds on indie film, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but that's cool. That's cool. You have to play that long game of the way this works is, you know, if you can create products and you can do it in the price range, that is the place for indie films can really thrive. You can make money doing it, but you have to commit to that thing. Gravitas is a great, great distributor. So they'll take care of you guys. It'll be good. Last couple of things, Chris, um, and I mentioned it briefly before. When you put together the cast and you put together the band, were you thinking, I want these guys to look, you know, it would be very, very easy to get four long-haired, good-looking guys, right? Were you thinking, right. I want them to kind of look, I say misfits, but do you, was that kind of the vibe that you were going with? I definitely wanted one guy to be the guy that had the hair. Yeah. Preferably our lead singer. And I found him in Wyatt. Right. And then you write a backstory like, oh, he's the kid. He's, he, his parents are together and they got money. So if the band needs an amp or a microphone, he's going to get it. His dad will get it for him because he's the rich kid. They rehearse in his garage. Right. <laughs> then you got like Jamie. He's the, the guitarist. He's African-American. He's like, he's actually talented. He's actually good. But he kind of in a strain, his dad's in the army, 
They don't really talk. There's some tension there that was never quite explained. So he has a different kind of, so what he has is that guitar in his hand and that's what he lives for. And then you got the drummer, Scotty, who's just a crazy redneck that likes to hit things, you know, (laughs) and he's cool. He's got the mullet, yeah, but he's a hothead and he's going to probably start a fight. And you got a guy like that in the band too. Um, He's just along for the ride. And then you got Cliff who he tells everybody, I'm the oldest, I'm 18. I'm the official adult here. (laughs) He's, he's a goofball and he can kind of play bass. He doesn't look the part, but he's big. He's imposing on stage. And he goes to the same school. Right. Yeah. He goes to the same school. He's in the right place at the right time. And he's like, I got a bass. And I, you <laughs> yeah. notice his bass is a, a lefty bass that he's playing right-handed. I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I got a guitar. Wait, I, it goes this way. Okay. Well, I guess I got to put the strings on different. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to create misfits that you would feel like. I know those guys. If I wasn't in that band, I was friends with them. If I was in that band, I'm wincing right now because that's what we look like. That's right. I wanted them. Yeah. I wanted them to be familiar to you when you saw them. Last two questions for you. So what's your overall goal for Electric Jesus? You mentioned to ask you in a year. Well, for the next year, what is your kind of plan for this? Well, Emily and I, my wife and I, we want to make films. That's how we make our living and want to continue making our living. I like working in this, uh, independent film space as well. I like working on stories that kind of surprise you and catch you off guard. And so we want to keep doing that. So, you know, making some money with Electric Jesus, making the film a hit is great and important, but we, you know, we're already working on our next project and really want to take it to the next level in a lot of ways, take some things we learned doing Electric Jesus and do them better, but also just keep improving, keep making art and business that, that matters. That's really our goal for the next year. It's been a long year of pushing the movie out there. And, and I'm so grateful that that you found it or talking about it with me. Uh, that means a lot. That means that it does matter to a lot of people. Right now, we just want to chill a little bit. Last question for you. Besides Striper, who is your favorite Christian artist? Well, I do like Steve Taylor quite a bit. He was kind of like punk new wave. And a couple of weeks ago, I was in California and I met Mike Stan from the Altar Boys, who were also in that kind of punk thing. I love them. Yeah. You know, I got to go with um, Bloodgood at this point. Ah. And, uh, and they lost a member of Bloodgood. Yeah, they just their did. Drummer. Yeah, their drummer, Kevin Whistler. Yeah. I, I've met those guys. I've talked to those guys, both uh, Les and Michael. Michael Bloodgood, who is the bass player. Yes, he is. <laughs> it's like, dude. With a name like Michael Bloodgood, how could you not have a Christian band? I, someone just asked me today, what's the best Christian metal band name? I said Bloodgood. No doubt about it. it. It's his real really name. name. His real name. Yeah. yeah. And I said, I think you might be the first band named after the bass player that ever existed. <laughs> Good in point. Or in any kind of rock and roll. But I like those guys a lot because Les kind of brought that, um, you know, he was like a Broadway actor and yeah. stuff. So he brings a lot of theatrics. Yeah. Yeah. And then Michael's just like an old Jesus hippie. They were like those Jesus freak, West Coast Jesus freak hippies. And again, they're still touring and they're still pushing the music out there. And they had a great documentary about them a couple of years. That was really interesting. Um, I like them a lot. I, I want to give you another. Oh, and I do like Amy Grant now. I do. I will admit it. I do like Amy Grant. I like more than after the 80s stuff, but I actually do like Amy Grant, and I can admit it. I'm man enough to admit it that I do like some Amy Grant songs. Now you can. No one's going to bag on you now. You're out of high school. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Chris, it's been great talking to you. Once again, congratulations on a great film. 
not just for the message, but for the way you, you, you filmed it and the writing and everything about it is just an excellent piece of work. So hopefully we'll see more from you very soon. And uh, thanks again for putting this out there. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. All right, everybody. Uh, that is it. Electric Jesus. Go watch it now on Amazon Prime. And uh, have a great and safe Christmas. Merry Christmas to you guys. I love you. And we will see you next week. Um, I hope you get everything you want for Christmas. Be good to each other and have a great, great holiday. Oh, yeah.